Where does it go? Where does it go? All of that cast off junk. Where does it go? Welcome to Where Does It Go, a podcast about stuff. I apologize for my voice today. I am at the tail end of a cold, and neither Sarah nor I got enough sleep, so this is going to be an interesting episode. Woohoo! <laughs> today, I'm going to be covering where the Chernobyl disaster fallout went. Uh, I have been reading a book called Chernobyl at Midnight by Adam Higginbottom, or Botham. I'm not sure if which pronunciation is correct. It's a really excellent book. It is enjoyable, but it's also about a tremendous disaster. So it's a little bit of a downer. <laughs> <laughs> so what I'm going to do to go over the Chernobyl disaster fallout and where it went is to talk about what radiation is briefly, and then what happened to precipitate the Chernobyl disaster, and then what happened afterward. And the information available in Midnight in Chernobyl is the most comprehensive I've ever seen. I am very fond of the Chernobyl disaster Wikipedia page, which I know is kind of weird, but it's really well written and very, I think, sort of compassionate to all of the operators that were in the building when the disaster happened. And Midnight at Chernobyl is also that, but it's a lot more information than a Wikipedia page. So we'll start with what causes radiation. It's the disintegration of unstable atoms, also known as isotopes, which results in the release of protons and neutrons because the atom is trying to stabilize itself, and that results in nuclear decay. In order to utilize nuclear decay for energy, you can mix an unstable isotope, such as uranium, with free neutrons. And that causes the generation of heat, and then you can use that heat energy to create steam and power a steam turbine, or there are many ways to utilize the heat energy. Now I'm going to go over the different like radiation particles uh, just to go over their effects on humans and, and uh, animals and plants. Alpha particles, beta particles, and gamma particles. Alpha particles are large, heavy, slow. You can block them with a piece of paper. If they're swallowed or breathed in, they can cause damage and death. Radon is an example of this. And a lot of us have heard about radon and how it can cause cancer over time. And it's from breathing it in. It's not from skin contact. So what is radon? Is it like swamp gas? It's what I always heard. It is. I don't, I, it may be naturally occurring in swamps, but it is a particle naturally occurring released from the soil. Okay. Beta particles can burrow into your skin and cause skin burns and genetic damage. Gross. Yeah. There's around a 10-foot safe zone, so if you're at least 10 feet away from a beta-emitting body, you're probably okay. Your body tends to use these items, or not, not items, but particles instead of essential elements. Strontium is a good example. It will integrate itself into your bones and your teeth instead of calcium. And then stick around and go through nuclear decay because it's still unstable even though it's integrating into your system. Something tells me that that's bad. Yeah, it's not awesome. It depends, <laughs> it depends on how much it is, too. If it's two particles of strontium-90, you're fine. If it's two particles per cubic centimeter of bone, probably a problem. Mm -hmm. Then there's gamma particles. These are the really problematic ones. They're electromagnetic waves. They can travel huge distances. They basically just shred their way through humans and oh. a lot of other stuff. Oh, that word shred. That's yeah, that's it, scary. They just smash right through us. So it's it's like uh, light going through a window, except imagine the light is also shattering the window oh uh that's and your then cells. imagine it's your cells yeah <laughs> uh, it can also severely disrupt electronics that's foreshadowing <laughs> there's a lot of foreshadowing in this <laughs> the bodily effects of nuclear decay and radiation particles are worse in the areas where cells divide rapidly so bone marrow skin the gi tract lungs 
so why would we bother using nuclear power? It's so dangerous. Because it's super efficient. It is very powerful. And with the proper moderators and coolant, it can actually work pretty well. So there's a lot of contention about the usability of nuclear power and we're not really going to get into that today, and this is not a declaration pro or against. It's just a discussion of a book I was reading, pretty much. In order to moderate a nuclear decay reaction and then generate energy and then utilize that energy, you need a fuel, a moderator to absorb neutrons so the reaction only happens as fast as you want it to, and coolant. It's, it's very similar to fire in that it's got three constituent components to a chemical reaction and when you remove one you remove the ability for the reaction to continue super critical is runaway fission aka a bomb critical is or critical mass is operating at a level of nuclear reaction that can be used to produce power chernobyl the particular plant there are actually four plants in a row and two more in construction when the fourth reactor went super critical. They used graphite moderators, water as a coolant, and uranium fuel. The interesting thing about the Chernobyl reactor and Soviet reactor design in general, and that's our, our co-podcast fellow, Shotzi the dog. Hi, Shotzi. <laughs> is that graphite was used as a moderator and water as a coolant. Water also functions as a moderator. That's also foreshadowing. The reason that a graphite moderator with a water coolant is not typically used anymore is because of something called a positive void coefficient. Steam from the water coolant forms bubbles in the water. The water is a better neutron moderator than steam, so the steam and graphite moderators mean increased heat, fewer neutrons are absorbed, less coolant, and as it heats the water, the water turns into more steam and it keeps on reinforcing itself. So then you have to depend on the control rods in the machine to slow the reaction. If that, the control rods fail at all, then the reaction will go super critical. That's foreshadowing. <laughs> Again. The Chernobyl reactor was 1,700 tons, and that's metric tons, which is very similar to a standard ton. 1,000 kilos equals 2,205 pounds equals 1.1 US tons. So the graphite blocks, 1,600 zirconium alloy tubes within the blocks. and those Like zirconium, like? Cubic zirconium? Yeah, similar. Probably okay. not necessarily the cubic conformation, but zirconium, yes. Okay, cool. And then 3,200 paired metal assemblies inside the zirconium alloy tubes that contained uranium dioxide mixed with ceramic in pellet form. Okay. About the size of your finger. Water would be pumped into the core, and then hot water and steam would be pumped to separator drums. The steam turns turbines, and the hot water returns to continue to cool the core. So the heat from the nuclear decay, essentially, would heat the water, steam would form, and run turbines. So it's basically just a big steam turbine, really. It is. But it, it's using the nuclear heat to um, heat up the water to make steam. Right, instead okay. of coal or uh-huh. other stuff. And because they're in the zirconium tubes, the nuclear reaction is separated by a lot of different stuff, really, but from the water. So there's not, when everything's working properly, nuclear... Uh, contamination of the water or there shouldn't be okay the control rods were 211 boron carbide rods tipped with graphite they absorb neutrons so they moderate how the how fast the reaction happens mm -hmm. this whole reactor was surrounded by networks of pipes above and below massive plates of steel concrete piles of sand like intentional piles of sand Iron shot, serpentinite, nitrogen gas, just tons upon tons upon tons of stuff all around the reactor. Now, let's talk about 
something that the Soviet Union knew about when they were constructing all these plants. This is important. <laughs> you looked at me like this is important. <laughs> the beyond design basis accident. If more than two of the 1600 zirconium pressure tubes rupture, the explosion is capable of blowing apart the reaction. So more than two of 1600, that seems like a low number out of 1600. It is. <laughs> also remember, if any of the control rods fail in a graphite water reactor, well, not any of the control rods, but if the control rod assembly fails... It's capable of blowing apart the reactor. This is foreshadowing. <laughs> <coughs> I don't mean to be flip. It's just, this was, there were many ways in which this was preventable, but it was the type of thing where bureaucracy and sort of social power and political power turned out to be more important at the time. And the Soviet Union is not the only place on the planet that has ever been guilty of this, just yes. to be clear. Reactor 4, 1228 a.m., April 26th, 1986. There was a safety test for the reactor that was two years overdue and running 12 hours behind schedule, scheduled for that day. There was a recent shift change. There were very tired operators. Some of the staff was missing. The train staff and physicists were not there because of the shift change. And the test was actually delayed to preserve power to Ukrainian manufacturing plants to prepare for May Day which is the labor holiday and was very important to the USSR. So for this test, per the book, they needed 700 megawatts of minimum power to perform the test. The director, not of the plant, but of the test, insisted the power be dialed down to 200 megawatts. And then the engineer who was working on the test skipped entering a minimum value so the system defaulted to zero megawatts. <laughs> it was a single, it was like a single entry in the form. So this is bad. Alarms, low power alarm sound. The staff waits at least four minutes for the reactor to respond to what they're trying to do to fix it. And xenon gas is building up. Because if the reactors powered down what ends up happening is the reaction kind of keeps going mm -hmm. the coolant's not really working so they raised 203 of the 211 control rods out of the reactor to get the power back up it took 20 minutes to get it back up to 200 megawatts from zero the xenon gas was absorbing neutrons so it was preventing any more power from being produced pumps to pump coolant go online at 200 megawatts, and the water in the coolant collects more neutrons. The water gets so hot that steam starts building up. And then once they get to 200 megawatts, they're like, okay, we can go ahead and do the test. There's still a lot of xenon gas. They either don't know this or it's not something that they consider. They simulate a design basis accident of complete loss of power to the plant to see how they can work uh, switch over to a generator, basically. Okay. Uh, during that test, the steam that was generated from the increasing heat increased reactivity, which increased the heat, which increased the steam, which increased the heat. And then at the end of the test, all now there were only 163 control rods out of the reactor. They were all reinserted at once. Now, this wouldn't have been as much of a problem if they didn't have graphite tips, because once the graphite tips hit the water in the reactor, they accelerated the reaction catastrophically, a critical mass formed, there was a huge surge in reactivity. Once the reactor re reached 3,000 degrees centigrade, it exploded. The control rods jammed, so they couldn't put them even further in. So there was only a little bit of the boron that was needed to moderate the reaction in the reactor when it exploded. And the reactor actually got up to 4,650 degrees centigrade, which is almost as hot as the sun. So this was really bad. Yeah, I was like, there's a mini sun in Chernobyl mm -hmm. in 1986. I can see the problem here. <laughs> yeah. And so part of why I mentioned the construction of the reactor is to reinforce how much stuff got blown everywhere because the graphite blocks got blown everywhere and they immediately 
lit on fire because they were so hot. Yeah. Once they hit oxygen. The roof got blown off the building. The reactor core was completely exposed to the air, which was not supposed to ever happen. And there was sand everywhere and uranium everywhere and control rods everywhere. It was really bad. And I'm not going to go into what the operators and engineers did after this, solely because I would then just be reiterating the whole book. It's a really good book. But what they did helped a little bit to prevent spread of fallout, but not a lot. Mm -hmm. It helped to prevent a, a bigger explosion. Right. At, at least they tried. They did try really hard. Mm -hmm. And actually, only one person died in the initial explosion. And that's because he was right above the reactor. So oh, wow. A lot more people died after, just, so, just to be clear. So the fuel left the reactor as aerosols and gases, chunks of fuel and burning graphite, a massive oozing core of radioactive lava. Massive oozing core of radioactive lava. Yep. Steam and water that was highly radioactive. And then absorbed into the dust and dirt in the ground, too. Wow. And this is just in the immediate aftermath. And I'll go more into, now where did it go? <laughs> The answer is a lot of places. So in the air, the radionuclides got as far away as Sweden, northern Canada, Turkey. Prob probably parts of China, but I don't know that we have a lot of information about that just because it can be difficult to get information. It got to Canada? Yeah, like the uh, Northwest Territories. Oh, okay. So it kind of went like over the North Pole. That's crazy. Yeah. Most of the radiation ended up landing in the USSR. It integrated into the lungs and mouths and eyes of everyone exposed. Oh. And cesium, actually, radioactive cesium, integrated into the soil, which then became part of the grass and other forage for livestock and wildlife food chains. <clears throat> and I was reading an article yesterday about how they're still finding boars, wild boars in Sweden that are contaminated with cesium-30. I think it's cesium-30. I don't remember what the isotope number is, but it's still contaminated with cesium. And it's been 32 years. Wow. So boars don't live that long, do they? I guess they can. I Maybe. don't know. I don't either. Huh. But it's, it's, you know, it's at least two human generations past. It's probably more boar generations past. Wow. Then there was also the issue of rain. So as the radionuclides... I don't know if I'm pronouncing that correctly. I hope so. Are moving through the air. They're not depositing as much as they could until they hit a low pressure zone and are precipitated out through rain. Mm -hmm. And so that's part of why the, the radiation maps of the Chernobyl effect on people and on land are patchy. Uh, like there were worst impacts on Germany and Sweden, and then, say, Poland. You know, it, it, was, uh, it was because of air currents and rain. It wasn't just a sort of spreading cloud that wasn't impacted by weather. Right. And the rain that precipitated out of the initial reaction cloud was black. Ugh. A lot of it fell over Sweden, Germany, Belarus, and China. So I mentioned the livestock and wildlife food chains a lot of the radioactive contamination showed up in meat, milk, and agricultural products from the Ukraine, Belarus, etc. Some of them were destroyed, but a lot of them were just integrated into non-contaminated foods and then sold. Oh, my gosh. So they got two people through food. Mm -hmm. And if you remember, I said that alpha and beta particles can cause problems when ingested. Mm -hmm. Right. I doubt that gamma radiation is safe when ingested either, but you probably... Don't even get to that point because it's so dangerous. <laughs> right. I'm just, I'm just spitballing that idea. In terms of how things moved out of the plant on stuff, there was a 30-kilometer exclusion zone, and it's actually expanded a little more since the 30 kilometers were decided upon. And so people had to be moved out of these areas. So 
they had fallout fall on them and their stuff mm-hmm. before they were evacuated. And actually, the evacuation was delayed slightly because there was confusion about what had actually happened and some denial. So buses, cars, construction equipment, military equipment, they entered and exited the exclusion zone. Some were hosed off before they exited. Some were not. Some were turned back, and they had to stay in the exclusion zone. But a lot of them just left, particularly people that left before the formal evacuation. There was radioactive dust on everything. Yeah. Some people were allowed to re-enter the zone and get some of their more important things like paperwork because they had nothing when they evacuated. They were told they'd be coming home in three days. Oh, they, wow. So, and they didn't to be clear. So a lot of those things were tested, but a lot of people were allowed to take things out, you know, through bribery or sneaking things out or whatever that weren't tested. So that's moving radioactive material around. It was actually on people. There were some people that had, particularly within the plant, the firefighters and engineers and operators that were working in the plant, some people were exposed to so much radioactivity that they became radioactive themselves. Oh, wow. Not a lot of them, but it happened to some people. And then there's also, there were a lot of animals in this exclusion zone. Right. Because it's just in the forest, right? mm -hmm. And some were slaughtered, some weren't, if they couldn't find them. And the exclusion zone is not impenetrable. Right. So these animals would come and go, particularly if they could fly, like birds. Also, a lot of people looted goods out of this area because people have been in their whole lives. So there was some nice stuff, especially because these were scientific workers, so they were not the poorest of the poor. They had some nice things. They were covered in death, but they had nice things. They were covered in death, but they had nice things. Yeah. <laughs> I like how you put that. Within the exclusion zone, it's estimated there are around 800 waste disposal sites. And the disposal sites were usually concrete, concreted around. They might even just be mounds, but they were concreted around. And they also used uh, PVA glue, basically, to hold stuff together. And it actually seemed to work pretty well for picking stuff up. Apparently, PVA glue is tremendously strong in the right formulations. Interesting. And it's also really cheap. Yeah, that's true. And so a lot of that stuff was buried. Mm-hmm. There's no map of these sites because they were working so fast. And there were so many people that worked on it because once you hit your maximum dose of radiation exposure, people were given dosimeters to make sure that they weren't overexposed. That still happened, but, you know, they tried. So, you know, Yuri would be working on something and get furloughed, and then Sergey would start again. What was Yuri doing? I don't know. Yuri wasn't in charge, so nobody recorded what Yuri was doing. And that wasn't a fault of Yuri. He was trying not to die while doing a really dangerous job. So Right. It was just... There was so much unknown and so much not understood that it was difficult in a very extreme way. Mm -hmm. Uh, There was a four-year cleanup effort, and that sounds like a short amount of time, but the Soviet Union had collapsed, so the cleanup efforts were kind of not disbanded, but not pursued heavily after that. Uh, There were at least 600,000 cleaners, people who came in and were conscripted to help clean up this place. So were they paid, or they were just kind of told to do it? Both. Okay. And some people volunteered, and some people absolutely refused. And they were guaranteed health care for life, and they had a lot of health issues after participating in this. But a lot of them were not classified as radioactive damage. And a lot of the engineers and operators and firefighters that were the initial responders, the first responders to the emergency, were also not classified as radioactive damage it was but it wasn't classified that way so let's talk about briefly uh, where the radiation landed inside people Uh, there were strontium deposits in bones and teeth iodine in the thyroid which particularly in children causes cancer gamma radiation just shredded through people and so they would have 
it would it would be slow to show up but as the cell damage started sort of cascading into tissue damage into organ damage into organ failure uh, people would just get sicker and sicker their livers would shut down their digestive systems wouldn't work their hair fell out beta particles burrowed in skin causing burns that would show up much later oh and then uh because of the collapse of the soviet union there hasn't actually been a lifespan study on humans for the chernobyl disaster Hmm. there were lifespan studies for the hiroshima and nagasaki bombings and that didn't really happen for chernobyl workers and it's a combination of the state collapsing, the state not wanting to acknowledge how bad things got, and the state not being able to do it. So let's finally come back to the plant and talk about that radioactive lava. So in the plant, the reactor sludge, which in, it melted all the metals around it and incorporated them into itself, all the sand and lead and clay and et cetera that were dropped onto the reactor in an attempt in the first few weeks to smother the fires that were ongoing and also to try to cool the reactor a little with sort of more non-reactive stuff that just melted into this lava and just became incorporated. And it all slowly flowed into the basement of the building. And it, this was a, early on a serious concern. There's something called a China syndrome where nuclear materials start burning into the earth and they keep going and keep going and keep going. They hit the water table. They keep going and they keep going. It's bad. And they acknowledge that this, within themselves, that this could happen and could not be allowed to happen. So they actually sent in a group of firefighters to pump, the water out of the basement because they were concerned once the hot core materials hit the water they'd cause steam it wouldn't absorb as you know it would it would further the reaction make it even hotter and so these poor guys had to pump gallons and gallons of i guess liters and liters of <laughs> water out of this base hot, super radioactive basement thank and, you by the way yes. for doing that into two open air pools. And then what happened to those open air pools, Sarah? I'm going to guess nothing. That's, that's as good a guess as mine. <laughs> <laughs> Who knows? So the lava hit the last little bit of water in the basement and cooled down enough that it's not continuing to burrow through the basement floor, as far as we know. And... So it's just a bunch of radioactive water and cooled metals at this point. It took about four years to find where the core had gone in the building because research and recovery work was so difficult to do. And actually, every time they sent little robots in to try to do work, they would break immediately because of the radiation. Wow. So people had to do the bulk of this work. So if it's destroying robots, like how how can people go in? I they don't get destroyed as fast. But it's like you get destroyed though. Yeah, just but you know after you shovel a few things of graphite back into the core or whatever. Wow. Yeah, there was a lot of human loss in this. We'll probably never know how much. So over Chernobyl, there was built what they call a sarcophagus, mm-hmm. which is just the biggest concrete structure you've ever seen maybe not maybe you've seen a bigger dam but otherwise massive concrete structure also metal they assembled most of it outside of the most radioactive zone and then would use they build shields for themselves and then move pieces and then move the shields and then move the pieces so they could sort of slowly get to the building wow and they actually still used reactors one through three to generate power for quite a long time. What? Yeah. And who knows what happens to those operators because it is, uh, there's been a lot of sort of 
I think they're like fairy tale like stories of oh the Chernobyl exclusion zone is like an Eden it's like a paradise all the animals and all the plants and looks what's growing and there was one researcher who sort of furthered that thought process by saying look at how successful everything is but there have been several other researchers who have been like no these animals and plants are dying really early and they're super malformed this is not there are a lot of radioactive deposits in this area and you know i think of the 800 ish disposal sites where no one knows where they are right or the open pools of radioactive water there are enough unknowns that i don't love that the narrative of the chernobyl exclusion zone is that it's turned into some kind of disney movie (laughs) yeah Now, one thing that is happening, which is interesting, well, some people actually never left the exclusion zone. I don't really blame them in that it was their home, and they're like, well, it already happened. Might as well just stay here. Right. And again, there haven't been lifespan studies of them either. They probably don't want to talk to anybody. Also don't blame them for that. But because of the invasion of Crimea by Russia and the unrest in that area of the Ukraine, there are people that are moving very close to the exclusion zone, like right next to it. Like one guy walks his dog along the fence every day. And their reasoning is the buildings are either very cheap or free. And this is a lot safer than where I used to live because I'm not getting bombed here. I'll take the radiation. So what, I die early. I get cancer. I'm not getting bombed. It's quiet here. It's nice. So it's uh, a lesser evil for some people. And uh, I wish them luck. Yeah. Wow. I read a book not too long ago. I think it's Follow the Noise or Follow the Danger or Follow the Trouble or something like that. But it's a story about fungus and how it basically heals the the ground and the earth and it talked about how this fungus is found in Chernobyl and it's actually helping plants grow and actually helping turn over the soil and it's this type of fungus that you can find in disturbed sites like Chernobyl which I found really interesting it seems like no matter what life finds a way even if it's horribly malformed and radioactive oh definitely I mean Survival of the fittest is not, oh, whoever's strongest wins. It's whoever has the most grandchildren is the most genetically fit for an area. Mm -hmm. So if you can get to reproductive age and then your kids can get to reproductive age, it's gravy, you know, from an evolution standpoint. And if y'all have three eyes, that's, you know. That's an extra eye. (laughs) (laughs) You can keep a third eye out. (laughs) So it's... It is reassuring to know that humans probably can't mess up the earth any worse than just getting rid of ourselves. We'll see how that goes. Yeah. (laughs) So yeah, mine's a downer. Sarah's is not. I find it extremely interesting, though. I just, I, uh, I don't know if you were alive for the Chernobyl disaster. I was. I was eight years old, I think. I was born in October of that year. Okay. All right. Yeah. So I remember it, but since I was eight, like I don't, I didn't really have a, a concept of what was going on. I just knew it was really bad and it was all that was on the news for a long time. Well, and, uh, Adam Higginbottom talks about that or Botham. I'm sorry if I'm mispronouncing it either way. He talks about how, because the Soviet Union was not releasing information, but nuclear scientists outside of the Soviet mm-hmm. Union were able to figure out where it happened yeah. before anybody talked about it. There were estimates of 15,000 people dead and right. massive radiation and bombs and everything. So what you saw was that you know best guess of what had happened. Mm-hmm. So I remember um, from my memory was that it, it was all outside scientists, like, we have no idea what happened, but something very bad happened. Mm-hmm. And that was pretty much my memory of it. And it wasn't until later that I think we knew what had happened. Yeah, and that's all the information you would have been able to get at all. Yeah. You as an eight-year-old were as well as informed as anyone else. 
<laughs> which is sad. Yeah. <laughs> wow. That's just so crazy. Mm-hmm. And then I was watching this show called Dangerous Traveler or, or Death Tourist or something like that. It was actually a pretty good show. He talked a little bit about Chernobyl, but he visited the nuclear sites in Japan where they evacuated people. And there are places there that the dust is so radioactive that they were pretty much saying... You, we shouldn't be here. We need to leave right now. And it's just amazing to me that people were living there at the time. And there's all this dust. It's crazy. Yeah, I believe the Fukushima. Fukushima? Re- I think so. Let me, let me double check that. I'm pretty sure it's Fukushima reactors. But that was worse than the Chernobyl disaster. And the Chernobyl disaster was very bad. So. Yeah. I didn't know Fukushima was worse than Chernobyl. I had no idea that more people lived in the Fukushima area than lived in the Chernobyl area. So that was a big part of it. Mm-hmm. it it's just unbelievable. Yeah, it's Fukushima. Mm-hmm. And that was what five years ago? Oh, I think so. Yeah, it seems like longer. Every day seems a little longer. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I'm tired. <laughs> Speaking of tired, (laughs) I'm going to talk about where do you go if you need a sleep study and what sleep studies are. And I had a couple of topics that I was working on, but this has been like the most, I've had a crazy week and this was like just the the cherry on top of my week. So I was like, you know what? I'm just going to talk about sleep studies because I had to have one last night and it was interesting. And it was weird, and it was very uncomfortable, but it was worth it, I'm pretty sure. Um, so why does someone get a sleep study? There's a lot of reasons you can get a sleep study. Um, most of the time, it's because your doctor says, I think that you have something going on with you, and I think that there's something going on with your sleep, and it might be secondary to your your sleep issues. And that's pretty much what happened with me. My doctor was like, you have these issues and I think that they're secondary. I think they're being caused by sleep apnea, which is interesting because I've been told before that I snore so loud that like I can wake the dead. It runs in my family. (laughs) (laughs) Raising revenants. Yes. My, my grandpa could snore so loud that I'm pretty sure he, he caused the zombie, the zombie apocalypse in the town I grew up in. But anyway, so there could be a few different things that could be going on with your, with you. You could have limb movement disorders like restless leg syndrome, which basically means your, your, um, brain hasn't turned off your motor neurons all the way and your leg is just flopping around and kicking and you're having a party down there your leg is having a party waking you up um you could be sleepwalking and randomly waking up in strange places maybe you're driving i don't know i hope not you could have sleep apnea like me you could have um, rapid eye movement disorders which is rapid eye movement disorders are when you are basically dreaming and it's the deepest part of sleep Um, and people can have disorders where they either don't have enough REM sleep or they have too much REM sleep or their dreams are so vivid that it just messes them up you can have night terrors and stuff and like I said you can have health problems that are secondary to your sleep disorder like heart rhythm problems high blood pressure really bad headaches excessive daytime sleepiness so if you're driving and you're falling asleep that's an issue depression and anxiety can be caused or exacerbated by sleep disorders there's a whole bunch of stuff that can go on with you just caused by not getting enough sleep and either you think you're asleep and you're not actually and you're waking up all the time or you're just not sleeping insomnia is a big deal too So sleep isn't important because a lot of stuff happens to your body while you sleep. Notably, um, your brain flushes out your cerebrospinal fluid of waste products. So all the waste, all the junk in your brain and your cerebrospinal fluid, that's when your body takes care of it most of the time. And also, it's thought that one of the functions of, of dreaming when you dream is that your brain is organizing the neural connections that you made during the day 
And then downgrading the ones that are not so important to you in favor of the important ones. And there's a lot of different theories as to why we dream. But this is, I think, probably the one that a lot of people think makes the most sense. You know, there's all the the theories about their therapy or your practicing skills or you, you know, if you have a more spiritual bent, you're going to another dimension. Maybe, I don't know, but most of the time we think that your brain is just kind of organizing all the stuff that happens and trying to figure out what's going to go on and how you need to prepare for it. So when you go to get a sleep study, what happens? (laughs) I know, but you should tell us. Yeah, okay. So yesterday I went to the sleep clinic, and so the sleep clinic at Duke is interesting because it is in an old hotel, which is kind of cool. There's a hotel on one side, and then like half of the hotel is actually sleep clinic. So it was really kind of like checking into a secret hotel. It was strange. I walked up to a door, and there was a camera, and I had to give my name, and then they opened the door. It was very odd. And then so they told me to go through the door and take a left and take the elevator. So I like I go down this corridor and I take an elevator up to the floor that they do all the sleep studies on. And it was all it felt really weird and secretive like I was in this weird lab experiment. It sounds like men in black. I know it's like I feel like I was inducted into some kind of secret organization while I was sleeping. <laughs> space travel in your brain they asked me um when i got up to the floor that i was supposed to go to the sleep tech asked me time i i usually go to bed and which is a funny question for me (laughs) never (laughs) but i i tend to sleep late but i told her 11 just because i i was exhausted that day she brought me to basically it was a large hotel room and i had a king-size bed which was i was not expecting at all And in the room, there was, it was like a regular hotel room, but there was like on one side, there was a CPAP machine. And then there was also like a control unit kind of thing that they were going to hook me up to. Obviously, it was like a little box with little numbers on it. And it looks like electrode leads went into it. And so she told me that she would let me get ready for bed and then Um, She would come back and hook me up to all the electrodes and things. So um, she left me for a while. I sat in and kind of read stuff and wrote for a little bit. And then she came to pick me up and she had me take my hair out of the bun that I had it in. And if anybody knows me, they know I have an exorbitant amount of hair. So she had a hard time kind of moving my hair around and she had to measure my head and she basically took what looked like a china marker you know like those markers you write on teacups oh like the little grease yeah yeah she took that and she wrote in various places on my head she like measured my head and then would make a mark and then um, measure my head and make a mark she did it all over my head And then she scrubbed in those places with this weird scrub. And then she put electrodes on it. And I had electrodes on over my heart, on my legs, all over my head, all over my face. I took a picture. Um, I looked like I was in the Borg. I was all hooked up. And then she, it felt like she was putting knots in my hair. Like it was very strange. Like it felt like someone was intentionally knotting my hair. And I I had all this weird goo in my hair, too. Yeah, it's like kindergarten paste. Yeah, I had like kindergarten paste all over my head. And then the electrodes ran to a control unit that I would say it was like a little box the size of a remote control. And it hung around my neck so I basically could walk back to my room and pee and all that stuff. She took me back to my room, and she told me she'd be back at 11. I had forgotten to brush my teeth. like <laughs> So I tried very lightly to brush my teeth because I hate funky teeth when I go to bed. And just try to brush your teeth with electrodes all over your face is very, very interesting. So 11 p.m. came, and she came to tuck me in. Like, she literally, literally tucked me in. I had to, I, I had already warned her, like, 
that I pee 11 million times a night because I drink so much water. So she let me pee, and then she had me sit in bed and hooked all my stuff up to the control unit. She tucked me in, like literally tucked me in, told me goodnight like she was my mama, turned off the light, and then over the speaker about five minutes later she said, she asked me to do a few things. She had me move my left foot, move my right foot, make my chest rise, make my belly rise. I had to snort like a pig. (laughs) (laughs) it was more like she told me snort like you're snoring but it's not i did a pig snort clench my teeth like grip my teeth open my eyes close my eyes and blink five times so this is from what i could tell this is a baseline in the beginning and this is strange because all the lights are off the lights are completely off and i realized i knew that there were cameras in the room and of course they must be they must have infrared vision or something mm-hmm. like that so they could see me in the dark so i thought about when i opened my eyes i wonder if i looked like a raccoon in the night <laughs> <laughs> so she then it was time for me to figure out how to sleep and this was fascinating i guess is a word for it about half an hour passed or an hour or two hours i have no idea I couldn't figure out how to position myself with all the junk attached to me. And I'm a side sleeper, so that I'm a side sleeper on the slide that all the junk wasn't on. So it was hard. I felt like a marionette. The air conditioner was driving me crazy, so I yelled at her to turn it off. I was like, turn it off! (laughs) So she came in the room, and she turned it off, which is nice. Then she plugged me back in. And then about, I don't, I I had finally fallen asleep, which I was worried this whole time. I was like, I am not going to sleep and they're not going to get anything. And I'm going to stay in this weird room for no reason. But I did fall asleep. She came in to tell me that I was not breathing. So I had signs of sleep apnea and she put a CPAP mask on me over my nose, which is strange. It's like wearing a headgear. If you were ever a teenager and had to wear a headgear and you have braces, except it was over my nose, so I didn't have anything in my mouth, which is, I think, preferable, probably. Yeah, I'm a nose breather, and so they put it over my nose. Mm-hmm. Um, it wasn't bad. Like, she had it on too tight, and since I've never worn any kind of mask like that, I had no idea it was too tight. I have a little mark on the side of my nose now, but it's not a big deal. When I opened my mouth, air rushed out. When I had the thing on my nose, it was so strange. But she tucked me in again, and just a minute or two later, I had a really strange sensation that I could actually breathe, and it was honestly amazing. Like, I had no idea that I wasn't breathing correctly when I was sleeping. You would think that would be something that you could do correctly, but apparently I wasn't. And then I fell asleep, and at... 5.56, she came in, she woke me up, I was groggy, I got my stuff and left, and then I came home and tried my best to take a nap and wash the kindergarten paste out of my hair from the electrodes. I think I washed my hair four times, and I think there's still some in there. Now I'm just waiting for the results. So I totally suggest a sleep study to anyone who's having issues and they don't know if it's their sleep, but they're really tired during the day or they have health issues that they can't seem to figure out where the cause is. It might be your sleep and it's totally worth it, I think, to figure out what's going on with you because you spend, what, 10 hours a night, eight hours a night. It's like a third of four your hours life. a night sleeping. Yeah. yeah. It's a, it's a third of your life. Like Emily was just saying, it's a third of your life sleeping. It's totally worth it. I know that it's not necessarily covered by everyone's insurance, but because my doctor ordered it, it was, it's covered by my insurance. So if you can, I suggest that you get a sleep study. Don't be afraid. You can do it. I was really nervous beforehand and That's where you go for a sleep study is you go to a weird clinic. Emily was telling me earlier she went to the hospital, which I think is strange. Yeah, it was really weird. I was not in that nice hotel. And we live in the same city. We have the same medical, uh, like, care practitioners. I was in a hospital 
in a room that they had made to kind of look like a hotel room. Like, it wasn't bad. I could see all the cameras. Mm-hmm. I guess that was reassuring. I knew mm-hmm. where they were. So she was telling me about, I don't know, she was telling me about the treatment for restless leg because, uh, like I am, I talked to everyone and I was 25 questions with her, like, what do you do? Why do you do it? How do you like it? Et cetera, et cetera. She's really, really, really nice. I, I really appreciate that she spent all that time with me. You know, I guess she was hooking me up, so I, I might have been interesting to her just talking to her <laughs> <laughs> instead of the one guy that came in and said, I want to go to sleep now. And she was like, um, I'm with somebody else right now. You're going to have to wait. <laughs> <laughs> I was at least nice to her, and she tucked me in, and she was sweet. I was going to ask her if she would read me a story, but I thought that was pushing it. So, <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, it was interesting. I decided to talk about it because it was a major portion of my life last night. <laughs> Where do you go? Go to your doctor. Ask about sleep things, sleep issues if you think you have them. And then go to a weird hotel. And then go to a weird hotel or a weird sleep clinic and not sleep just a little bit, maybe kind of. Yeah. <laughs> With electrodes attached to you. Do your it, best. Do your best. Cool. And it wasn't it wasn't scary. I thought it was going to be scary, but it wasn't scary. That lady was really nice. I liked her. I don't think I have a reuse project. Do you have one? No. Hmm. You should read Daniel's book. He's got a lot of reuse projects. That's true. Upcycle technology. Yeah. By Daniel Davis. Yeah. He was on last week, and he was awesome to talk to. And hopefully he'll come come back in and talk to us um, some more because he was really fun. And he's got a ton of reuse projects in his upcycled technology book, like how to make a smartphone into a backup camera for your car. Or how to make a smart, how to make a smartwatch out of your old Nokia cell phone, and lots, lots more. Yeah. It's a fun book to read. Mm-hmm. Very approachable. All right. That's a good reuse yeah. plug. Yay! Plug for Daniel. <laughs> <laughs>